Will you bow with me as we pray once again? Father in heaven, we come to this portion in our service of worship where we worship you through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of your holy word. And Lord, even as I'm praying, even right now, Lord, I I understand and I know full and well that I am inadequate, I am unworthy. But Father, in spite of a weak and foolish servant, would you speak your truth to us, Lord? You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. So would you speak truth and life over us this morning? Father, we come as humbly as we know how to your word, and we ask that you would speak through your word to encourage us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, but also, Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would motivate us. All of these things are possible through your Holy Spirit moving through the reading, teaching, and proclamation of your Holy Word. We ask that you do these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of James, the New Testament book of James, the letter that was written by Jesus's brother, James, the apostle. We are almost at the end of James, almost at the end of James. We're in chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 7 through 12. So I will read for us in just a moment. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I encourage you to take one from the back of the pew there that's in front of you and feel free to borrow that for the duration of the service. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, feel free to take that and keep it as our gift to you. But regardless of if you're looking up the Word of the Lord in a digital or a printed format, I would encourage you, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. I'll read for us beginning in verse 7. When I've completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you are grateful for God's word, I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look at these verses together. The word of the Lord says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. You may be seated. 
We come to this passage in James's letter to the church in dispersion. It begins with patience in suffering. The attention has turned from those who are wealthy to those who are impoverished. The attention has turned from the evil oppressor to the righteous who is being oppressed. From presumption to patience. Instead of fighting back through all the sins that we listed last week, instead of getting angry, getting frustrated, and taking vengeance for ourselves, we are called upon to be patient. If you are an employee working for an employer, and the employer is not paying you the wages, like we talked about last week, and they're being evil to you in doing so. The Bible calls it evil even in the New Testament, but we're told to be patient in suffering. And what struck me the strongest all week long wrestling with this passage is our barometer of suffering. You know, I just have to believe that suffering is a lot like running because every time I'm running, I feel as though I am suffering. Can I get an amen? Anybody else feel similar? I don't know what's wrong with these people who just enjoy running and they talk about, you know, the adrenaline and the endorphins that are released. They get this runner's high. I I don't I don't understand that. My brain doesn't work that way. When I'm running, my brain's releasing chemicals going, why, why, please stop. Obviously, you can tell by the way that I look. But we have these folks who can run and and you think, you know what? I'm an active runner. I, I get out. I get my exercise and I can run a 5K. I can run about three miles or so. You know, that's that's pretty good. Uh, and after about three miles, you're like, whew, man, my, my legs are hurting. My legs are sore. I am done, right? And then what's the, the next step up? Then you've got those other runners who they take it to the 10K, right? Then, then you've got the half marathoners. There's probably some steps in between, but I'm not a runner enough to know the steps in between. You go from 10K, we'll say to half marathon. The half marathon runners, they are out there killing it. Then you have the marathon runners. And they always talk about how those 26 miles are not really all that bad. It's the point two at the very end where you want to give up. And I'm like, I, I just, if I've made it 26 miles, I just can't understand why I would be ready to give up when there's only two tenths of a mile left. But again, I've never been in that situation, probably never will be, okay? People who run marathons do so so that they can say they ran a marathon. There's, there's no bone in my body that has the need to say that. I, I don't have the need to stand before you as a congregation and go, Last weekend, I uh, ran a marathon, completed it too. I'm just not one of those guys, okay? There are different levels of intensity when it comes to runners. Do you know now marathons are not enough? They have what's called ultra marathoners. And no, I'm not talking about Forrest Gump, but these people are running like Forrest Gump. I made it all the way across the great state of Alabama. I thought, might as well keep going. And I made it to one ocean, and I thought, might as well turn around and go back. That's how these people run. They are running hundreds of miles. And it's incredible to me to see what the human body is capable of. To see what someone who trains and puts in the work can actually do. I don't think that many of us could survive running a hundred miles. But there are people that have trained their body. And as humans, we are capable of doing something like that. But for most of us in this room, maybe there's a few runners mixed in among us. A 5K is going to be pretty taxing, right? To say this afternoon, you have got to run three miles. Everybody's a little bit, okay, all right. I mean, if I got to do it, I guess I could. Can I walk some of the way, Pastor? Can I, can I walk just a little bit? 
that suffering. And, and we have been conditioned, by and large, to understand suffering at a certain level. But the suffering that I see in the Bible, even the suffering that James himself uses as an example in his actual letter, not an illustration that I'm coming up with to add to, he points to the prophets. He points to the prophets. We have been in the prophets in the Old Testament, in the minor prophets specifically. We have been studying the things that they did. We've been studying Hosea recently in our Sunday school time, right? Hosea is instructed by the Lord to go and marry a woman of ill repute who sells her body as her source of sustenance, right? He purchases this woman and has children with this woman. And then the Lord tells him she's going to go back to her old lifestyle. You're going to have to go back and buy her again. And we want to talk about suffering in our marriages today. You didn't have to marry anybody named Gomer who was intentionally told at the beginning of your marriage that Gomer, who I'm sure must have been beautiful with a name like Gomer. I, I mean, I'm sorry, not trying to be too judgmental there, but, you know, Ooh, what a beautiful girl. Let's call her Gomer. Doesn't, doesn't seem like the most logical choice there for a beautiful young lady. You're told that you're going to marry a woman and she's going to go into that lifestyle and, and leave you and you've got to go buy her back. And yet I want to talk about the suffering that I might experience in the minor disagreements my wife and I have. Suffering in marriage. Marriage is so hard. It's so difficult. It's so challenging. Yeah, but have you heard about Hosea? Life is just hard. God asks me to do things that make me so uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, but do you remember Isaiah? The Lord asked him to walk naked and barefoot. And prophesy while walking in the most public places, naked and barefoot, to show people this is how you're going to be carted off. Naked and barefoot. You know what? The Lord hadn't really asked me to do anything that crazy, so I, I, I think I ought to count myself as blessed. Think about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the one who wrote Lamentations, right? His whole life is one long lament of, Lord, why? Why are you doing this? He spends his life in exile. Think about Daniel, who longed to see Israel, who longed to see Jerusalem, never made it back there, but kept praying three times a day, who was persecuted for his faith and was told, stop praying. And he said, I'm going to keep praying. I don't care what you do to me. So they threw him in the lion's den. And today we want to get up in arms because somebody can't refuse to bake a cake for a wedding between two men or two women. Now, don't get me wrong. That is persecution. Don't get me wrong. That is wrong. And we should stand up against it. But at the same time, we act like that's the lion's den. And it doesn't compare. It's not even close. Be patient in suffering. The suffering we're talking about, the suffering that we experience is, is like a 5K. And the analogies that James is using are ultra marathons. Three miles is daunting enough, but a hundred. And then he points to Job. You just don't understand it's so hard to make ends meet. What about my children? I care so much about my children and, and so many terrible things have befallen my children. I, that's awful. I hate that that is happening. And I hate that we live in a sinful world where that happens but when he's talking about being patient in suffering, he talks about a man who lost multiple children. Have you read the beginning of Job? He loses some children to a storm. He loses some children to raiders. 
This man lost everything he had, including all of his children. And God actually never told him why. (laughs) You spend the whole book of Job, and by the end of it, the Lord goes, Where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I said the ocean will come this far and no further? Who are you to ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing? And Job went, You know what, God? You're right. I'm sorry. My bad. God never said, Here's why I'm doing this, Job. And yet you and I, from our air-conditioned homes, from our well-heated homes in a very comfortable temperature, with food stacked up for weeks in our pantries, we have the audacity to talk about suffering. Now don't get me wrong, some of us do suffer. Some of us do experience hardship and pain. But, but I almost think that we've built this up in the same way that the Russian army's built up, right? So the Russians expected to bust into Ukraine and take over almost overnight. They expected their army to be so mighty. And everybody in the world has expected them to be so technologically advanced and such a powerful military force that Ukraine never stood a chance. Well, then the world rallies around Ukraine. They get some defense systems. All of a sudden, the very mighty and powerful Russian army isn't quite as put together as we thought they were. Their morale isn't quite as exciting. And the news cycles these days are all talking about how Ukraine continues to gain ground and Russia is resorting to just shooting missiles at cities and just trying to make threats of nuclear bombs. I wonder if the same thing is is not true of, of our army. We think we're so big and we're so bad because of things that have happened in history, but when push came to shove, are we really as tough as we think that we are? We want to say, oh, I know how to suffer for the Lord. I know how to suffer for the Lord. I know what it is for times to be tough and for times to be hard. But when push comes to shove and times get really hard, if another Great Depression comes around, where's our faith then? Where do we stand then? When what we thought was hard, when what was exhausting in running three miles, and now all of a sudden a hundred is demanded, where will we stand? How will we endure? When James is saying for us to be patient in suffering until the coming of the Lord, he is talking about severe suffering that I would venture to say most of us, by God's grace, have not truly experienced in our lives. We often are professional catastrophizers. It's a new word, okay? Jason Gunter taught it to me. You take a catastrophe and you make whatever is happening into your life a catastrophe. You catastrophize. So we are catastrophizers. We take the smallest slights, the smallest incidences, the smallest uncomfortabilities, the smallest inconveniences, and we blow them up into these huge catastrophes and imagine that truly we must be suffering And this suffering, why, God, would you allow this to happen? I ran out of gas on my way to work. Lord, how could you allow? I got a flat tire. I had to call, and AAA took like an hour to come to me and change my tire. Oh, God, why do you hate me? Is that really suffering? Okay, it's very inconvenient. It messed up your whole day. You you got AAA, though. You you called AAA and you're, you're waiting on them to come to you. Maybe you don't have AAA, you just know somebody handy. It was a whole 45 minutes before some nice stranger pulled over and helped me change my tire. 
Maybe you know how to change your own tire. Now I got to go to my meeting and I got grease and dirt and grime on my hands and under my fingernails. I had never had dirty fingernails like this. Lord, I'm just suffering. And we don't even know the beginning of the meaning of suffering. We have a car that can have a flat. I was listening to a sermon this week where it's talking about in Philippians, Epaphroditus travels from Philippi to get to Paul 800 miles walking. <laughs> walking. And then when he gets to Paul, Paul he's thinking Paul's going to send Timothy back, right, to give report to the church. And Paul goes, it's you, buddy. It's Epaphroditus. It is you, man. Paul, this is going to make my round trip 1,600 miles. 1,600 miles. Just hop on an airplane, man. It's like a four-hour flight, okay? But, dude, you're going to be fine. Like, you know, make sure you get up and walk around because you've been on the plane for a while, but it's going to be fine. No! We had to sit on the runway in taxi. It was like 30 to 45 minutes before the plane even was able to pull onto the runway to take off. And, and that is our suffering. We have incredible medical marvels and breakthroughs. And it is always a tragedy when we lose somebody we love. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are tragedies. There are sadnesses that we experience. But imagine a world where you have no clue. You have no idea that you were diagnosed with cancer because you don't know what cancer is. And one day, somebody you love doesn't get the diagnosis that they've got cancer and they've got a few months left to live. One day, they just don't wake up. You don't get the privilege of going to the doctor and getting the dialysis treatment that's keeping you alive. Your kidneys just shut down and you die. And we want to talk about how we know suffering. We want to complain to the Lord, why God me? And you might think that this is sounding harsh, but when we have the right perspective on suffering, when we have the right perspective on how terrible things could be, it is only then that we truly appreciate how good things are. If you know that you can run 100 miles, 3 miles doesn't sound very daunting, does it? It doesn't really even sound like a warm-up. I could run 3 miles. I got 97 left in the tank. 3 miles, I whatever. Bring it on. That's a different perspective. That's patience in suffering. Then when you get stuck in traffic. Then when your kid comes down with the flu. Then when something truly tragic happens in our lives, we are prepared to face whatever comes our way because we know who the bedrock of our faith is and we know how bad it could really be. We understand how bad we really deserve for it to be. And yet we understand how good we've really got it. Please don't hear me being insensitive this morning. I know, even as I look out among this congregation, I know that some of you are experiencing suffering. I know that some of you are hurting and have experienced heartache and pain. And it is tough. But one of the best ways to persevere through suffering is to remember how others have suffered and survived. How others have suffered and persevered. I don't know what it is about human nature, but we just feel better knowing we're not alone, right? We just feel better knowing that somebody else has been down this road. 
If you get diagnosed with cancer, somebody comes up to you and goes, no, 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 don't you worry. I got diagnosed with that same cancer. I went to see this doctor. It took this kind of treatment, and I have been cancer-free for years now. Do you not immediately feel uplifted? Do you not immediately feel better? In the same way, it's always really discouraging when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you know, my uncle had that same kind of cancer, and he died in like two days. It was horrible. It was the most miserable experience he's ever had I mean, like, I've just never seen anybody hurt like that. Are you sure that's the kind of cancer you got? Oh, it is? Listen, it's going to be bad. It's going to be pretty rough. I mean, like, I hate it for you. That's, that's awful. That's terrible. Whatever you do, don't be that person, okay? If somebody tells you that they have a terrible disease, don't go into a story of a similar disease or similar experience that ends horrendously. Be the encourager. Help one another suffer. And be patient together. That's why he gives the example of the farmer. He gives the example of the early and the late rains. He says, establish our hearts and not grumble against one another. When we realize we're not on an island, when we realize that people are not against us, that people are supporting us, it makes the suffering easier. How much faster do runners run when someone faster than them is setting the pace? It's almost an instinct. If someone is one or two paces ahead of you, you will force yourself to run faster to keep up with them. There are marathon runners who talk about they end up going a much faster pace because they were chasing someone down the whole marathon. And having that brother, that sister in Christ to come alongside you to say, I've been through this. I've been where you are and God is still good and God is still faithful and he will not leave you. He didn't leave me. He won't leave you. And I'm here for you. How can I help? All of a sudden, that hundred mile trek seems a lot more like three because somebody's right there with you. You lose track of the miles as that person with you helps pass the time. Folks, there's a way to be patient in suffering. And it's not to sit on our rear ends and complain and whine and moan and grumble and lash out against other people. In the midst of pain and suffering, is our reaction not almost always to be frustrated and lash out at someone? We say things we would never mean to say. I don't know what that is, by the way. That is craziness. So, hang with me. We can't grumble in the midst of our suffering. That's why James ties these two things together. And then he moves down into verse 12. We'll move on into verse 12. Verse 12 just kind of feels like it's tacked in there out of nowhere, doesn't it? I love the way that James writes, but there's so many times where I feel like he and I are kindred spirits. He saw a squirrel, something caught his attention. But above all, brothers, don't swear. Wait a minute. Be patient in suffering Consider blessed, the Lord's coming, uh, but, but don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. What on earth does that have to do with anything else? It's a way of living our lives. Remember, this is a mirror in so many ways of the Sermon on the Mount. This is almost the exact same thing that Jesus says in the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If somebody tells me they're going to be there and they don't show up, then the next time I'm going to say, are you really going to be there? 
Are you really going to show up? Are you really going to put forth the effort? And then they have to come back with a superlative and say, no, 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 I'm definitely going to be there. I guarantee it. I promise. I swear I'm going to make it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. If we're living our lives in such a way that we have to constantly say those words, we're not dependable. We're not living what we say we're living. If someone is suffering and we're going to go and be there with them and we say, don't you worry, I'll, I'll be there, I'll help you along the way. Ah, sorry, something came up, I can't make it. If you can't make it, say no. If you can make it, say yes. Our lives should reflect that that's enough in our words. We should be the kind of people that are there to support one another and it doesn't require this. No, 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 I, I really, I, I promise it's true. How often, even when we're sharing the gospel, is it that we have to go through? No, 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 this is, this is really real. I know that there's some crazy stuff out there, but this, this, I promise, is the real deal. We should be living our lives in such a way where people look at us and go, you know what, if Jason said it's the real deal, it must be the real deal. You mean he like went way over the top? No, I just know Jason. I know his life. I know who he is. What does that matter? Why is that an above all? Because if you say you're a Christian and you don't live like a Christian, if you say you're a follower of Christ, but nothing in your life is different, how is that different than saying, I'm going to show up and I won't? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you never believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, nothing will change in your life. Nothing will change in my life. And my yes to the Lord was not really a yes. My no to the world was not really a no. But we should live in such a way that our yes is yes and our no is no. And that even continues to our commitment to Christ. Will our commitment to Christ be one that we have to make over and over? No, 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 Jesus, I'm serious this time. No, 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 Lord, I promise. I swear by all that is good and holy, Lord, I will commit my life to you. But then nothing changes. We're the same person. We don't open his word. We don't spend any time in prayer. We have nothing for him. No visible change in the fruit of our lives whatsoever. And so we go back to the, no, 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 no. Really, Lord, really. I, I'm going to be different. I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe. I, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to take over my life. It's coming. How many of you have, don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had that friend that makes those grand promises? I'm, I'm going to change. How many of you have had relationships where somebody in the relationship says, I'm sorry I've treated you that way, but it's going to be different. It's going to be better. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm not going to treat you that way. We should be living in such a way that it never comes to those conversations. Our yes should be yes. Our no should be no. And that should be prevalent in every aspect of our lives. So that even when we're suffering, even when we're being patient. It's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. My yes is yes. My no is no. I have an understanding of what I deserve and what I'm getting and the difference between them. My yes is yes, and my no is no. The only example that James doesn't use, but it's implied, is the example of Jesus. If ever there was someone whose yes was yes, whose no was no, who was patient in suffering, it's our Savior. Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, 
He left the glories of heaven. That's not exactly like leaving your nice, comfortable, air-conditioned home on a hot summer day in July or August and going outside and going to live somewhere where there is no air conditioning. It's a thousand times worse. It's a thousand times harder. He had every convenience, every comfort, every glory, everything imaginable there at the right hand of the Father. But intentionally, he stepped down. Every moment that he was with us on this earth, comparatively to where he was in glory, was like suffering. Because he was enduring what we endure. Being tempted the way that we are tempted. He wasn't tempted that way in glory. He didn't experience heat and exhaustion. He didn't experience a lack of food. He didn't have to camp out outside of places. Nobody strung him up and beat him. Nobody lashed his back with a cat of nine tails. Nobody put a crown of thorns on his head. He experienced suffering and was patient every step of the way. If our Jesus can do that for us, our call is to emulate him. For us to be patient in suffering, especially suffering for his name's sake. The whole reason he took on that suffering is so that we would have a chance at life. So that we would have a chance at redemption. The whole reason behind suffering is so that people might know Christ. The way we handle suffering is the most powerful way of sharing the gospel known in human existence. When true suffering approaches us in life and we handle it with patience and grace and steadfastness like Job, The rest of the world is blown away. They don't understand how so much bad can be going on and how we can stay so committed to Jesus. That's how Jesus lived. That's why people, after He was raised from the dead, were drawn to Him. They saw Him conquer through the suffering. They saw the peace. They saw the patience. They saw the love, the joy, the kindness, the meekness, the gentleness, the self-control. And when that's us, even in the midst of suffering, people will be drawn to Christ. So this morning, I just wonder, how do you handle suffering? How do we look at suffering in our lives? Are we looking at a 5K and imagining an ultra marathon? Are we remembering what Jesus did? 